Good morning. Let's all stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we're going to be reading out of 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, I know that I often say, this passage is my favorite passage in the Bible. And I've totally discredited myself. But this might, in fact, be the one. So, yeah. Um, powerful, powerful, powerful woo, passage of Scripture. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Forlorn. I mean, come on, how often do you get to read that in the Bible, right? It's just such a great word. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is God's word. You may be seated. So if it's your first time, we are in our second week of a mini-series in our year-long walk through the Bible. We're calling it a year of biblical literacy. And the idea is that we are reading the Bible as a community uh, firsthand. We're reading it for ourselves because though maybe you grew up in church, you've been exposed to Christian teaching your whole life, many of you haven't even read through the Bible. And what we're seeing happening now is that for the, maybe the first time ever in our culture, people are leaving the church not because the church was unloving or ungracious or wasn't communal, but because of the Bible. They, they're hearing that there are things in the Bible, they're coming across certain passages like in Joshua or Judges, passages that you've recently read, and all of a sudden they're like, man, I, I'm okay with the church, and I'm actually okay with Jesus, I just can't get down with the Bible. There is so much blood there's so much sex, and there's a whole lot of violence. And, and so people are becoming disenchanted with the Bible. And so it is so important for Christians to read the Bible ourselves and to know what the Bible says. Because we have a biblically illiterate culture that is using the Bible to critique a biblically illiterate church. And you know what? There are really, really good answers for this stuff in the Bible. And so we're walking through all this, and we mentioned this uh, when we first began the year. I said, hey, we're going to talk about the problems of the Bible, and at the time, you know, we were reading through Genesis, and like, the worst dude in Genesis is Judah, and you're like, okay, yeah, he's a really bad dude, whatever, you know, and now, though, you're reading through Joshua, you're reading through Judges, like, what's with Samson? Did I ever tell you guys a story about how, uh, just stop me if I did, right? Uh, This one time, Judah and Hudson were like, wrestling, and Judah's just like pound for pound. He just outweighs Hudson, so he just sits on him, you know, and he's like taunting him like older brothers do, and Hudson's getting all frustrated, and, and afterwards, I'm like, I pull him off, and I'm like talking to him about it, and Hudson's like, Dad, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just, I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit will give me power like Samson so I can beat up Judah, and I'm like, right, yeah, okay. I, I see how you got there. Let me, let me talk to you about the Holy Spirit and what he does in our lives. Let's look at Ephesians, you know? Like, and so part of the problem is, that, like, what, what's with that, right? 
So why does it seem like Jesus is totally nonviolent? Actually, Jesus is not violent. It doesn't seem. Jesus is nonviolent. The New Testament is nonviolent. And the Old Testament has a lot of violence in it. A lot of violence in it. And one uh, critic of Christianity said this, man, if you actually look at the Bible, God kills more people than anybody else. Right? I mean, Satan kills like three people. Nation of Israel kills, you know, thousands, but God kills millions. Like, if you actually, you know, tally it up, this seems to be a problem, right? Richard Dawkins, maybe you guys have heard this before, he says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindicative, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So, what do we do with this? Is that true? And some have taken the Old Testament and they say, hey, you know, we just need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. It's offensive. Uh, I'm not even sure the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. This is actually called Marcionism, uh, and it's a heresy, which means it's unbiblical. Um, And this was shut down like early church, condemned a long, long time ago, that the, the gods are two different gods. So, we, we have to, as Christians, we need to dig deep and look at this stuff. Okay, so what, what is going on here? What, what is going on in the Old Testament, and then what's going on in the New, and how do we reconcile the two? And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to continue that. We're going to talk about violence. And I said this last week, but I'll say it again. Some see this as a bad thing, like, oh, no, the culture is attacking the Bible. There, there's all this, you know, textual criticism and all this stuff. This is a really good thing because all of a sudden, for the first time in a long time, Christians are actually reading their Bibles, and they're actually looking at who their God really is. And it's a new, a fresh perspective on us. It challenges us in just such different ways. See, here in the, in the West, we are all about grace, we're all about mercy, we're all about kindness, and we have a really hard time with law, we have a really hard time with judgment, and those are the passages of scripture, like you don't crochet them and you don't put them on your wall, right? The interesting thing is, the rest of the world population actually believes the opposite of what we believe. They say, if there is a God, he must be just. He must judge evil. See, we live in the cushy West, where we are insulated from so much of the evil of the world. Now, we, we, it's here, but it's, it's, it's wrapped, it's shrouded in you know, a seeming goodness or innocence. But the rest of the world is raw, uh, and it's violent. And, and so when we come to the scripture, it challenges our cultural um, assumptions, assumptions that we make about God, assumptions that we make about the Bible, and I've said this a million times, but the Bible, we find that God is actually much more conservative and much more liberal than we can possibly imagine. And we, as God's people, should find ourselves somewhere in the middle. So let's do this, right? Let's talk about violence, and I'm going to try to bring this to a little upbeat at the end. Not like upbeat, like, yeah, you know, it's, it's me, so it's not that upbeat. I mean, you guys know. Um, but I'm going to try to, like, give some hope within this teaching. So the first thing I want to talk about is this idea of God being on our side. The idea of God commissioned genocide, holy war, and ethnic cleansing. Welcome to Refuge Christian Fellowship. So here we go. Holy war is as old as time. Think about the Incas, the Aztec, the Chinese, the Mongols, the Greeks, the Romans. Um, think about the Crusades. Um, it's been going on forever. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. And one of my, like, what? Yeah. Holy War, Bob Dylan. One of my favorite Bob Dylan songs, though, is the song with God on our side. Just listen to this. It says, the history books tell it, and they tell it so well. The cavalry's charge, the Indians fell. The cavalry's charge, the Indians died, for the country was young with God on its side. Oh, the First World War, it came and it went. The reading, the reason for fighting... I never could get, but I learned to accept it and accept it with pride, for you don't count the dead when God is on your side. And then the Second World War, it came to an end. We forgave the Germans, and now we are friends. 
Though they murdered six million in the ovens they fried, the Germans now, too, have God on their side. Dylan exposes this self-righteous American savior complex. America's cause is God's cause. We deified our nation so we can justify our blood guilt. God is on our side, and so he is for our cause. Let me just say this. If you're like, man, what is your problem? Down with America. Do you know that every nation thinks this way? Years ago, I went to Russia, believe it or not, hanging out with the commies. And uh, I was in uh, a classroom. They were, you know, welcoming us Americans, and they're singing us their national anthem and, you know, their, their freedom songs. And they start singing, you know, and there's like um, a translation for us. And it's like, basically, land of the free, home of the brave. And I'm like, wait, hold on, no. We are the land of the free and the home of the brave. (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, and like all the same themes that are going on in our anthem are going on in their anthem, are going on in South Africa's anthem. And, you know, I was there, I was in South Africa probably 20 years ago. And that was, I mean, maybe 20 years after apartheid, right? And so I'm, like, thinking about it, like, wow, like, land of the free, home of the, not really, not recently anyway, you know? I mean, like, that's pretty, that's pretty raw, land of the free, home of the brave. It's interesting, every country does this, right? They deify their nation, they deify their cause, and then it's us versus them. For Dylan and our parents, it was the Russians, the commies and the capitalists engaged in the Cold War. For our generation... Speaking of myself, it was the Muslim versus the secular West. Now I guess it's North Korea, you know, apparently. I don't even know. Um, I can't really follow it. Um, But whoever it is, the point is whatever country you're in, it's us versus them mentality, which depersonalizes, dehumanizes, and objectifies the other. And that should really cause us to stand back for a minute as Christians. Like, okay, what nation are we a part of? What kingdom are we a part of? And, of course, we are American citizens. But first and foremost, our allegiance goes to King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. Anyway, getting back to my notes. So this mentality has led to holy war, genocide, and ethnic cleansing again and again in the history of the world. The question is, is this what's happening in the Bible? and particularly in the Canaan conquest. And this is what I want to tell you this morning. The answer is no. And I know that that sounds simplified. I'm going to explain what I mean. But the answer is a resounding no. That is not what is happening in the Bible. In the Bible, it actually works in the opposite direction. And that's why I read from 1 Samuel chapter 2. You'll notice that the theme of 1 Samuel chapter 2 is that the mighty are being brought down. The tyrannical are being judged, and the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the fatherless, the foreigner, these are the ones that are being lifted up. God is saving the needy. God is saving the broken and the humble. And you guys, this falls right in line with the Sermon on the Mount. Who get the earth when it's all said and done? Who gets it? The powerful? The meek. Those who do not fight get the earth. Who obtain mercy in the end? The strong, the powerful, those who rule on pain of death? It's the merciful. See, this is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. God rescues and redeems on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong, and especially when it has raged for far too long. And yet, sometimes, we've got our American Western goggles on, we come to the Bible and we say, yeah, we did this to the Native Americans. This has been done throughout the history of the world. God was on our side, it was our land. Actually, very interesting, the pioneers actually took the Bible to justify their cause. This is Canaan, and we are conquering and casting out the infidel. That's how they justified their cause. It's despicable. That is not what is happening in the Bible. Israel, you remember, is a nation of slaves, 430 years of it. This is all they've known for generation after generation. Oppression, weakness, brutality, the slaughter of their babies. They are at the bottom of the caste system, and they are going up against the superpower of the day. Egypt is the world empire of its day. 
And listen to this. When God talks about bringing them into the land of Canaan, this is how he describes it. When the Lord brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you the many nations, he lists them out. He says, these are seven nations larger and stronger than you. So we often think, oh, the poor Canaanites, the poor Perizzites and Amorites and Canaanites and Girgashites, right? These poor guys, Israel's just bullying them and just taking over their land and doing this horrific stuff to them. Actually, it's the opposite way around. The Canaanites have giants, powerful fortresses, warrior people. These are the things that are often talked about when referencing the land of Canaan. Israel, not bullies. They are not the powerful. It's the other way around. Now, let's talk for a minute about Israel's bizarre warfare policy. If I could sum it up in one line, this is what it would be. Dismantle the nukes and burn the tanks. This is Israel's warfare policy. Dismantle the nukes and burn the tanks. So, first of all, Israel has no king for hundreds of years, right? They have no king except Yahweh. In that culture, the king was the one who would lead a nation into battle. He protected the land because it belonged to him. And he would also try to gain more land, right? Um, more land, more money, and the king would have a standing army. But again, Israel has none of this. The land has been allotted to the whole nation, and there is no king, therefore no standing army, at least not for hundreds of years. And God warns them about this when they want to um, put a king in place. Israel's army, here's another point, is untrained and volunteer. It's like if, if America really wanted to practice Israel's policy of war, it's like, okay, we have no, you know, secretary of war, we have none of that, our army is totally and completely untrained, and it's completely volunteer. Listen to this, there was no taxation for the army because God wanted taxes and excess wealth to be given to the poor, not to fund the military. That can be found in Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29. Deuteronomy 17 strictly forbids the king, when Israel does appoint one, from multiplying horses and having a professional army. Horses were like missiles back in those days. If you had horses and chariots, it's the equivalent of modern-day nukes and tanks, truly. And so the king wasn't allowed to do any of this. He wasn't allowed to make military alliances with other nations. The psalmist later writes this. It's powerful when you think about it in context. Some may trust in horses. Some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in military might like nukes and tanks, but God is the one who protects us, is what Israel is saying. I said Israel is untrained and volunteer. When Israel goes to war, the captains are appointed at the time. At least this was the way God set it up. <laughs> it's just, it's, this is comical, right? Like, okay, uh, you know, it's like picking teams for basketball. You, you, you look big. You, you know, you kind of look strong. You, yeah, that guy does not look strong. Not him. You know, like, that's the way they picked it. Like, you guys lead. And then this is what they would say. They got everybody there, and they're like, okay, is anybody afraid? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a little afraid. Go home. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. We, God's got this. Uh, has anybody recently been married? Yeah, yeah, I just got married. Oh, wow, that's, that's wonderful. Good for you. you know, go enjoy marriage. Go continue your honeymoon. Has anybody planted a vineyard? I love this one. And not drank of its wine. Has anyone sowed but not reaped the benefits of something? Go and enjoy that. Enjoy your life. God has got this in the bag. It's very, very bizarre, Right? Think about this. Remember Gideon's army, 300 men versus like 100,000. And Gideon's men are armed with torches and pots. Like, it's comical. I mean, I guess you could smash somebody over the head and like burn them. But that's not even what they do with them. You know, it's not like, okay, this is the tactic. You know, like that's not even it. Like, Break the pot, it'll scare them, and then they go into confusion and they slaughter one another. Nobody even has to fight. David and Goliath. David has a sling and is a teenage shepherd boy. Goliath is a warrior from his youth, has learned the art of brutality and violence, and oh, also he's a giant. Like, yeah, there's that note. 
Have you ever thought about the words of David to Goliath? He contrasts Goliath's weapons with the power of Yahweh. Listen to this. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, weapons of warfare, but I come against you in the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, and you have defied him. You've mocked him, derided him. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. By the way, Goliath already said all the same stuff to David, so he's just kind of giving it back to him. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Okay, so for the first time ever, I was reading John 18, where Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says, so you're a king. Jesus says, yeah, you know, I am a king. He's like, now I'm forgetting. But this conversation happens between Pontius Pilate and Jesus. and, And Jesus says, if my kingdom were like this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not like this world. I have never connected the redemption that Jesus brings with this passage here, but for the first time, it just stood out to me, like just leapt off the page. Listen to David's word. How will the Lord save? When the Lord comes on the scene to save Israel from its enemies, when God comes to rescue the world, how will he do it? He will not save by sword or spear. That's not how God does it, David says. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's just like this theme that runs all throughout the Bible, that God does not use these things. He doesn't need these things. And when Jesus, the king, comes into his kingdom, it is not by sword. It is not by spear. It is not through pain of death. Jesus does not trample over his enemies. It's not by sword or spear that Jesus becomes king, but it is by his own death for us that he becomes king. It's this incredible consistency, actually, that we see all throughout the Bible. So many stories, including the story of Jesus and the cross, have to do with God's people being outmanned and outgunned, and yet God is the one that defends, protects, and prospers this weak and vulnerable people. And this really is a picture of the heart of Yahweh. He is the defender of the weak. He cares for the small, overlooked, unjustly treated, and trampled over of this world. He fights for them, and he brings the tyrants to justice. Another clear indication that God is not into violence and bloodshed like Dawkins and Hitchens and these other guys have proposed is even this. If Israel goes to war against a city, they are first to offer peace to it. And only if the treaty is denied can Israel go to war against this people. Non-combatants are not to be destroyed and also fruit trees which I think is just so good, right? It's like, you can use, you know, some of the trees, but don't, don't harm the fruit trees. Those are, for, those are for people to enjoy. Not only this, but I, I mentioned this earlier, but they're commanded to hamstring the war horse and burn the chariots. So when Israel defeats their enemies, they are not to say like, oh, like, wow, let's grab a bunch of swords, you know, let's, let's build up our arsenal, let's get all the chariots and all the horses, and so then we'll be stronger. You know, I, I said this a moment ago, horses and chariots were superior weapons of strength in that day. If you had these in a battle, you were bound to win any fight. And so just think about this, guys. God's people are commanded to destroy horse and chariots of other nations and their potential usefulness to Israel in further battle. Uh, one guy I read recently, Preston Sprinkle, in his book Fight, he says this, it's like killing your enemy with a knife and not taking his gun. Like, again, it, it's still violent, but it's really backwards. And, and it's not like 
continuing violence. It's not saying like, okay, well, we're going to be ready next time so we can just blow our enemy away. Superior weaponry was rejected in order to demonstrate trust in Yahweh as warrior and protector of his people. Again, from Preston Sprinkle's book, Fight, a Christian case for nonviolence, he says, Israel is never given the green light to go out and kill whomever they want whenever they feel threatened, nor are they ever allowed to invade a country to dismantle an unjust government or preemptively strike a nation building chariots of mass destruction. It's clever. In comparison to the surrounding nations, Israel's military policy is comical. The army and the weapons of that army is what made you what you were and it's what kept you on top of the proverbial food chain. But not so with Israel. It was the Lord that protected and preserved Israel and he proved that again and again. This, let me just say this, this is Israel's policy of war when they are truly following Yahweh. So I'm not saying that Israel always did this perfectly. They didn't. They did not. And even some of the best kings are confronted by God for their violence, becoming militaristic states. But when Israel was truly following Yahweh, God fought for them, though they were outgunned and outmanned every time, and their enemies always would scatter before them. And this is what God said would happen. Okay, so the question is, all right, so that's Israel's you know, warfare policy, and that sounds all good and nice and everything. What about the Canaan conquest, though? Yeah, Canaan conquest is a problem, for sure. And it would be much easier for us if we could go with the idea that Israel is simply deifying their nation and their nation's cause, and they're just attaching Yahweh's name to their bloodthirst agenda. But, honestly, you have to do a lot of textual stretching to get there. Wouldn't it be nice to simply say... The Jews just did what every other nation has done. God's on our side. We can do whatever we want. Rather, in these stories, like in Joshua, the angel of the Lord's army says he isn't on anyone's side, which caused you to pause, you know? Joshua's like, okay, there's Jericho. We're going to take it. And he sees the angel of the Lord. And he's like, hey, are you with us? Or are you with them? And he's like, no. <laughs> Hold on. No. Okay. The question is, no, that's not how it works. Are you on the Lord's side or not is the question. Israel is not fighting battles and attaching Yahweh's name to it. Israel is fighting Yahweh's battle. They become God's instrument of judgment. And I know that that doesn't sit right with us Western secular people, but this is what it is. It's not just bloodthirst and warfare and violence for the sake of violence. No, Israel becomes the sword of God's judgment. And so does Assyria, and so does Babylon, and so do the Greeks, and so do the Romans. And somehow we see throughout the history of the world, God takes what is evil, and he uses it to bring judgment upon unrelenting evil and wickedness. So let's look at that. Whose side is Israel on? So I said this a moment ago. God does not give Israel the green light to holy war, to kill the infidel wherever and anywhere and everywhere, right? This is not the way of God's kingdom. What happens in the Canaan conquest is specific judgment on the inhabitants of this land. So first of all, the land that Yahweh says belongs to him. This is Yahweh's land. There are some speculations that the land of Canaan is actually the site of the original Garden of Eden, I tend to agree with this because it's just so random to me. Guys, if you've ever been to Israel, and some of us are going pretty soon, woo, woo. Um, okay, apparently nobody in this room. Um, but if you go there, and I think I shared this last time I came back, you go there, you're like, this land? Like, really? Like, it looks like California desert. You're like, really, God? <laughs> you must see something I don't see about this land, you know? It's like... It's hard to see what God sees in this land. And when I studied years ago about this idea of Eden being the original place, it makes sense, right? God doesn't say this about any other place, but he says specifically, this land belongs to me. It's my land, and I give it to whomever I want, 
And this is what's taking place here, right? So this is the place where God's presence dwells and all the evil and wickedness and sin that's being done in this land, it's like it's being done in God's living room. It is abhorrent to a holy, just, and righteous God. Remember that we're told in Genesis chapter 4 that the blood of the innocent cries to God from the ground. It screams out for his just vengeance on evil. So just imagine what this land is saying to God. It is screaming out to Yahweh, avenge us, O God. Give us justice. Give us righteousness. Give us truth. Year after year after year after murder, after rape, after slaughter, after genocide, after civil war. Year after year. It's being done right in God's presence. And the Bible teaches us that God is both creator and judge, and he is the one who gives life, and he is also the one who has alone has authority to take life. He is the avenger of all wrong and the one who deals out true justice. And we believe with Abraham that the judge of all the earth will do what is right and just. That's in Genesis 18.25 when God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for its rampant wickedness, its rampant pride and arrogance that has come up before him. Abraham, he's like, I don't get it, God. I, I, okay, if you find you know, 50 righteous 40 righteous, 30 righteous. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right, he asks? The answer is yes. God will do what is just, what is right, and what is true. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, we have to note again the holiness of God. God's goodness is so good and so pure that evil cannot be in his presence and live. And we have many examples of this in the Bible. And so, as I mentioned, the Canaanites are doing this evil in the equivalent of God's living room. And God says again and again that this land is his land and the Canaanites have forfeited their right to it. Now, on top of all this, you guys, we know. What, what is the most, what's the Bible's favorite verse? You guys remember? Come on, Refuge. What is the Bible's favorite verse? Exodus. Well, close. Exodus 34. Okay. Who has a pen? Who has a phone? Write that down. It's really important. Like, God repeats something over and 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 over again. It's important. And what God wants us to know more than anything, apparently, in the Bible is his character. Let me just read it because I wasn't going to, but I guess we need a refresher. All right? Here we go. Exodus 34. Too far? There we go. Okay. So let me, let me just give some context here, right? This is God's character. This is God, how God feels towards golden calf worshipers, right? The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin, but who will by no means clear the unrepentant but visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So on top of all this that we're talking about, we have to remember that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy for thousands. And he shows the Canaanites incredible mercy and patience. Listen to Genesis 15, right? This is the passage where God says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give this land to you as far as you can see. It's going to be for your descendants. But first, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt. And they're going to be in slavery for a time because, and this is what he says. I didn't write it down, but it's in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 15. I'm sorry. No, yeah, it is Genesis 15. I I didn't write down the exact uh, verse. So listen to this. He says, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, Egypt, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Why, God, are you going to wait so long? Because 
The sin or the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God, at the time of Abraham, he's like, man, these people are really, really wicked. These people only continually do what is evil. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to give them 400 more years. Let me just ask you something. How patient are you? Are you 400 years patient? How much, I mean, did anybody watch Hotel Rwanda? No? You should watch it. My wife hates that I watch all this stuff. I want to see all the violence. I want to see all the evil. Why? Because it reminds me I'm living in a world under sin. I'm living in a violent, awful world that God promises to redeem. And I need to remember that because I can fall into this, hey, everybody everybody just needs a little bit more grace. No, actually, Grace has a limit. We'll get to that in a little bit. But grace does have a limit. And sin must be judged. So God gives these people 400 years to turn from their wickedness, to do righteousness, to do justice, but they don't. Now, both the New Testament and Old Testament picture of Yahweh is one of grace. Patience, compassion, forgiveness against sinner, and We just talked about how the Bible's favorite verse is Exodus 34, God's self-revelation to golden calf worshipers. Our God is not a God of violence. He's not a God who delights in vengeance and bloodshed. God says this later to Ezekiel, have I any delight in the death of the wicked? No, I want him to turn. I want wicked people to turn around and to receive grace and mercy. Have you ever noticed this? I noticed this for the first time in my life. It was mind-blowing. When, when, when Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4, God doesn't kill Cain. I've just never thought about it. I don't know why. I'm like, it like leapt off the page again. Like, whoa, God doesn't kill Cain because why? Because God's not into violence. God is not into just like killing people. We make this caricature of God that he's just like, yeah, feels good. That is sadomasochistic, like, weird stuff there. No, that is not our God. Rather, our God, he doesn't meet violence with violence, but he places a mark on Cain so that no one else will kill, so that no one will shed more blood. And so God responds to the first murder with grace, which is a visible preservation of the shalom of the garden. And this is the idea we see in Scripture, that God is, like we talked about last week, he's trying to get us back to the Edenic ideal. And, of course, that has come to fruition in Jesus. And in Jesus' kingdom, people were to live out that Edenic ideal. But God's not into bloodshed. God seeks to preserve as long as possible the Edenic state. And this is God's consistent character with sin and sinners. God reveals himself to people in order that they would turn to him. He shows them grace, patience, and offers them repentance and forgiveness. But if they continue in their rebellion, God will judge their unrighteousness. And that's the second half of Exodus 34. For those who don't repent, God will judge. The psalmist says, God will wet his sword. He'll get it ready for judgment. So, back to the Canaanite uh, conquest, right? God brings judgment on this nation because their sin has reached maximum capacity, not because God hates them, not because they aren't his special people, but because they continue to rebel and reject God and do incredible evil in his presence. Sometimes we treat the wrath or judgment of God like a divine temper tantrum, right? We do this. God is hot-headed and just ready to blow people away. And this, like I said a moment ago, is a gross caricature of the God of the Bible. Uh, John Stott said this, the wrath of God or the judgment of God, listen to this, is God's steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. He is slow to anger, but he is determined 
to judge sin and evil. In light of all this, the Canaan conquest is not genocide, but is, in fact, judgment. God's judgment on persistent and unrepented evil, and he uses Israel to bring it, to do it. Christopher Wright says this. He wrote a book called uh, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. He says there is a huge moral difference between arbitrary violence and violence inflicted within the moral framework of punishment. The conquest, like the flood, was divine capital punishment after hundreds of years of spurned grace. All right, so then, so we talked about the Canaan conquest, but we need to talk about devoted to destruction uh, because this is really important. So God gives a command. You guys remember this? Everybody that's reading this? I underlined it every time it came up in my Bible. Somebody's going to read my Bible and be like, wow, this guy's jacked up. Like, yes, yes. You know, like that's not what's happening. But I was just like, wow, it's in there a lot. Like, make note. So God gives a command concerning the Canaanites in Deuteronomy 20 that no matter who you are, it makes, it makes your skin crawl. You're like, whoa, God, this is not in your character, right? He says, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. And he lists out the nations, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So, wow, God, right? Everything, children, babies, non-combatants and the innocent. Yes, this is what it says, right? Keep nothing alive. So what do we do with this? And so let me, let me just say... These things might soften the blow a bit, but judgment is still judgment. And it's, it's a fearful thing, says the writer of Hebrews, to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not something that we take lightly. So if you look at most of the passages where God commands conquest, the words are drive out and dispossess the Canaanites. Drive out. Exodus 34, 24, Numbers 32, 21, Deuteronomy 4, 38, dispossess, Numbers 21, 32, Deuteronomy 9, 1, uh, Deuteronomy 11, 23, 18, 14, and 19, 1. Drive out does not mean slaughter. It means to force them out of the land, and this is the most commonly used language when God refers to the Canaanite conquest. It records again and again in the book of Joshua, here's the next point, that Joshua devotes to destruction all that breathe, just as the Lord, and it says this, just as the Lord God commanded him. So the idea here is that Joshua obeyed. He did exactly what God told him to do, right? Then, though, a big but, then it records many times that the inhabitants of these very nations are still in the land. So either... The Bible is contradicting itself within the span of a few pages. Like the, the author's like, oh, shoot, wait a second, I didn't mean that. You know, like, and it's just there. Like, we devoted them to destruction completely. We killed everything that breathes. And like, oh, what are you still doing here? Like, we killed all of you. You should be dead. There's that. Or devote to destruction and kill everything that breathes is actually more like hyperbole. And we use language like this all the time, right? It's like complete annihilation. Man, you know, the Lakers were annihilated last night. Really? Did they slaughter the Lakers on the basketball court? And you watched this, right? Like we do this all the time when talking about sports. So first, it is undeniable that the children of Israel did not completely slaughter these nations. In fact, in one passage, it says even Saul, King Saul, right? He completely wiped out the Malachites. He left none of them alive. Yet, the Amalekites keep popping up in the story of Israel again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And even when you get to the book of Esther, you know Haman that tries to kill uh, Mordecai and tries to murder all the Jews? He's an Amalekite. It's like, no, no. My Bible told me that Saul killed all of them. No, the rest of Saul's life, he's fighting the Amalekites. So obviously he did not kill all of them. That's not actually what happens. So the Bible is using some hyperbolic language, which was very common. 
uh, in, in war accounts of Near Eastern cultures. They would use this like total slaughter language all the time. You can go and read them. And so it seems to me what is going on here is that God is commanding Israel to drive out, dispossess, rendering inoperative the power of any further authority or influence of these people groups. The people of Israel are to rule the land and be the influencers, not the other way around. And this is consistent. Dispossess them, break their power, wipe them out. And the idea is that, I think, is their power, their authority, their... Um, Israel is to be the representation of the land, not the Canaanites. But still, Char, women and children are specifically listed. Okay, this is true. Most scholars agree that the cities that are being destroyed by Israel are most likely military outposts and not vibrant cities. Well, wait a second. Rahab uh, is in Jericho. She lives in the wall. Yeah, she's a prostitute. So she's going to be where the money is. And where the soldiers are. I'm sorry if that's like crass to people. But like, that's the reason Rahab's there. It's like, you make good money at Jericho. It's where all the soldiers are. And none of the women are, right? So think more like, if you're a nerd, like fantasy, think more like Helm's Deep of Lord of the Rings and less like San Francisco, right? That's what we've got going on here. So the amount of women, much less children, would be minimal, in the Canaanite conquest. Lastly, God commanded the removing and destroying of the Canaanites, women and children included, because he says this, if they don't, they will become a snare and lead Israel into all their evil. It wasn't just the leaders, right? The whole of these nations and cultures, you guys, were saturated in perversion, violence, and idolatry. It was a way of life for them. And this is exactly what happens. These nations are not driven out, and they become exactly that to Israel, a snare. And it's, it seems to me that through hyperbole and mirrorism, the Canaanite conquest is less barbaric than a first read might suggest. But no matter how you slice it, as I said, judgment is gruesome, and women and children were killed. So it's bad. It's, it's, it's awful. It's sad. Judgment is a terrible thing. And God does not desire this for anyone. So let's talk a minute about the Canaanites, and then we'll try to wrap this thing up. So how bad are the Canaanites? They're particularly bad, okay? They are not one nation, first of all, but many tribes engaged in continual violent civil war and bloodshed. I mean, you just like hear the language. Like, we just read this, I think it was in, yeah, it's in Samuel. This one guy's like, to one of the tribes that moves in, one of the Israelite tribes, he's like, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to I'm going to take you over. And they're like, oh, no, make a treaty with us. Fine, I'll cut out all of your right eyes, and then we can have a treaty. Now, in a shame-honor culture, that was a big deal to take out somebody's right eye. It's really violent. Like, what, why? why? Why must you? Like, we'll serve you. We'll give you money. Like, we'll do all these things. Why do you need our right eye? Because I'm sick and weird and twisted and violent. That's why. Like, this is just how these nations operated. And they were constantly in civil war. Remember when the Gibeonites make this treaty with Israel? They hear about Yahweh, and so they want to be a part of Israel. What happens? All the nations around hear about it, and they come, and they try to wipe out the Gibeonites. They were all about civil war. Like, hey, you're not on our side? We'll annihilate you. So these are not one, you know, peaceful nation. It's many tribes engaged in continual violent civil war and bloodshed. Their cities and culture are filled with incest, bestiality, rampant religious prostitution, both male and female, and child sacrifice. These are a part of everyday life, people. This does not make the evening news. Well, it's so-and-so sacrificed their child this evening, you know, and you can see its corpse still sitting there. It's like, no, nobody cared, because that's just what you did when you worship Molech. You gave your best to Molech, and this was common, accepted, and even boasted about. They boasted about their violence. God said that the land had become defiled, so God punished their iniquity, and the land itself, this is the language it uses, vomits them out. But listen to this. Listen to what God says to Israel. So do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled. So I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you keep my decrees and my laws. 
The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the other nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons will be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements. And do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Now, you guys remember last week when we were talking about Leviticus and the holiness code? We were talking about, like, you know, we talk about, like, social ethics and all this stuff, and God just calls it holiness. But all the laws are about how you treat your servants. They're about fair judgments. They're about provision for the poor. This is what God is asking of his people. These are not, like, heavy requirements. He's saying, basically, what Micah 6, 8 says, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with me. That's all I'm asking of you. And yet, sadly, Israel eventually becomes a militaristic state filled with violence. They practice and perfect the art of violence and war, and they boast in it. They make alliances with other nations for power and wealth. They worship all the pagan deities from the nations around them, and they give themselves to the same perverse sexual practices as the Canaanites, and they even burn their children in the fire as an offering to Molech. So in short, Israel becomes Canaanized. And God is good on his word. Assyria and Babylon come and bring God's judgment on them as well. The land vomits out Israel, and they go into captivity. From Preston Sprinkle again, he says, God did not bully the Canaanites because of their ethnicity, nor did he coax Israel into a bloodthirsty massacre carried out with xenophobic relish. Rather, God's holiness demands sacred space for him to dwell with human beings. This is why the Canaanites had to be driven out, and this is why Israel was driven out as well. Let me point out one more thing before we just talk about us. Every person that turns to Yahweh is brought in. God brings them in and he makes them a part of his people and he blesses them. Rahab the prostitute, there's one, stands out. And that's always connected with her name. It's like, just so you know, like these, these are the kind of people God loves and accepts and forgives and makes a part of his family, right? Ruth, the cursed Moabite, she comes from the cursed land of the Moabites. The Gibeonites, right? They're a tribe in, in the land. And it says that all of these, they heard about the amazing acts of Yahweh. And while the other nations hear about it, they double down their efforts. Like, okay, we've heard Yahweh part of the sea. He, you know, he destroyed Egypt because of their evil and their slavery of their people. And, and he did all these miraculous deeds. Okay, so we need to be even like more pumped up for this fight. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, no, the, 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 the narrative's supposed to do the opposite. Like, we'll never win. We should surrender. And they're like, we're going to fight harder. The Gibeonites get it. Rahab gets it. Ruth, oh, we just read the story of Ruth. Oh, it's beautiful. How Naomi had introduced her to the God of Israel. And she saw, like we were talking about last week, that the law of Israel and the God of Israel, oh, he was sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. And this is what Israel was to be to those nations, a light to them, to draw them to Yahweh. This is what Yahweh's judgment is to do, that others would see it and turn. Could these nations have repented even at the 11th hour? That doesn't seem contrary to our God's character, but sadly they don't. But all who turn in repentance to God, God brings them in. And by the way, Rahab the prostitute and Ruth, the cursed Moabite, both in the lineage of Jesus, right? So it's like, well, hey, there's something there, right? God, like, he's not xenophobic. God is not just all about the Jews. He loves all people, and he includes them in his story. All right, so how bad are the Canaanites? Yeah, they're pretty bad. How bad are we? That's a good question to ask, right? Gosh, man, the Bible is so violent in the world back then. It's awful. Yeah, that's called chronological snobbery. The last 100 years have been called the most violent century in history. Over 187 million people have been killed in war, most of whom were civilians, noncombatants. Around 170 million have been killed by their own governments, 
This century has witnessed seven genocides. In Rwanda alone, 800,000 people were slaughtered in 90 days. We're still coming upon mass graves that we don't even know about, finding just hundreds of thousands of bodies that were buried by their governments because they got in the way. Currently, there are 26,000 nuclear warheads in the world, eight excuse me, each eight times more powerful than the atom bomb of Hiroshima. And there has been an escalation in violent crimes, homicide, rape, and torture, as well as human trafficking, not to mention the millions of babies that we have murdered in the name of freedom and equality for all. So violence is everywhere in our culture. Music, art, movies, video games, even, you guys hear about this? Oh, attempts were made to block the shooter's videos that he made in New Zealand. Hundreds of thousands of people went online to, v- to view these. We're bloodthirsty. We're hungry for gore. We want to see it. We want to see people bleed and suffer and die. What the hell is wrong with us? You think the Canaanites are bad? We're pretty bad. So what's the difference between Canaan and our current culture? Honestly, I wouldn't say a whole lot. And I've been thinking a lot about Pharaoh, as you do. You know, you sit in bed at night and you think. (laughs) Pharaoh. So, just think about what happens, and and this is a consistent theme of the Bible. God comes to this tyrant oppressor of his people, and like Cain, God doesn't just slaughter him for enslaving his people, like, hey, I'm God, done, come on Israel, let's go, right? What does he do? Well, God presses upon Pharaoh. I am, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my people go. Let them go. And, and all these people get like the Calvinism, Arminianism thing in here. And you know what the first thing God says about Pharaoh's heart? He says, yeah, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and I'm going to lift him up, and I'm going to use him, and I'm going to do all this. The first thing that God says about Pharaoh's heart is, you know, Moses goes before Pharaoh and does the whole thing, and God goes, <laughs> Pharaoh's heart's really hard. Like, yeah, no crap, God. Like, yeah, it's hard. Like, he's been enslaving people for, like, hundreds of years. But it's interesting to me that it's just this, it's a comment. It's not saying, I made Pharaoh's heart hard to do that. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He's like, no, Pharaoh's heart is already really hard. He's already a really severe, hard, violent man, a tyrannical leader, and God doesn't kill him on the spot. He could have. Instead, God presses upon Pharaoh. He makes known his power, his wisdom, and his wonders to Pharaoh in all of Egypt, and yet Pharaoh hardens his heart, and finally God brings judgment on him, his house, and his people, just like the Canaanites, just like Israel, and I would say just like the world today. God has not changed. What has changed is this, and this is something that we need to understand as Christians. We are living in a time of grace. We are living under the grace of the kingdom of God. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the wedding feast. He goes to invite the friends of the king, Hey, invite all my friends. Tell them the wedding is ready. Everything has been prepared. Come to the feast. Come and enjoy. And so they go out and they tell everyone that's part of that kingdom of the king. And they say, hey, the the feast is ready. Oh, I just got married. I'm not coming. Oh, I just did this. I'm not coming. Oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. Everyone rejects. And so the king says, go into the highways and the byways. Go and compel anyone that would come. And partake of the feast, for everything is set and it's prepared. Come and enjoy the feast. This is what has happened through the work of Jesus Christ. God has prepared a table of feasting, a a table in his presence to be with God, to be in his kingdom. Everything has been prepared. Nothing bars anyone from being a part of God's kingdom because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of his righteous blood that was shed, because of the judgment of God that was laid upon him there at the cross. God says, I will forgive even that, the most horrific of sins. Yes, come to the table. Whoever you are, whether you are oppressor or the oppressed, whether you are, I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. Anyone and everyone is invited to come and receive the love and acceptance that God gives through the substitutionary death of his son. It's able to cure all unrighteousness, heal all ailments, forgive all wrongs, and banish all worthlessness and fill us to overflowing. This is God's offer for our sin and our evil. And he offers it again and again and again and again and again. 
And sometimes we forget that we are living under a dispensation of grace. God is not repaying us, the world, for its sin, but he laid the judgment of sin on Jesus. The Father and Son have said any who trust in Jesus, as I said, oppressor and oppressed, captor and slave, abused and abuser, sinner and sinned against, can find both forgiveness and justice, repentance, healing, grace and peace through the work of Jesus' cross. And then, of course, we know as Christians, we're sinned against sinners, but we're people who have come to Jesus for rescue, and we're sent out as nonviolent ambassadors of God's kingdom to make known his righteous rule and just and righteous king. But there is coming a day when God will judge everyone for what they have done. There comes the tenth plague for this world. The, the time where God finally says, enough is enough. The iniquity of the world is full. And all who have not received, like we have in that picture of the Passover lamb, all who have not received the blood over the post of the doors will be bare and open under the judgment of God. They will have no covering for their sin. But to all who look to the lamb, all who will receive God's grace and his mercy, it is free. The day will come when God will settle all debts. He will fulfill second, or excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 2. He will judge all righteousness. He will repay all wickedness. He will reward all faithfulness, goodness, and righteousness. He will lift the poor from the dunghill. And he will exalt them among the princes, of this, the princes of this world for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. And one day God will come, and he will turn the world right side up, and he will make all things new. And we are God's ambassadors to compel all people to receive the body and blood of the Passover lamb as a covering for their sin and to live under the blood against the day of judgment. We're going to close. I know I've gone long. This is, this is a lot. Like I know that. But can we just close with Second Peter? Peter says much better what I was trying to say just now, so we'll just, we'll just read Peter. Okay. So Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, God's promise is never coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. There's no judgment. There's no judgment. God's not going to judge this world. No way. But they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was flooded with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and earth now exist and are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But don't overlook this, my beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away in a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be to live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is going to rescue and redeem the weak, the broken, the fatherless, the widow, the downcast, those on the bottom of the caste system. He's going to do it one day. He's going to set everything right. And we, church, are supposed to be representatives of that in the way that we live our lives, nonviolently for the cause and the kingdom of God, that we do this, that we represent, that 
the grace of God, but also that we warn that judgment, that it's not forever. And we do that by living lives of mercy and compassion. Remember, we've been talking about this a lot, and I, I'm like way over my time. This is the last thing I'll say. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So remember that. This is not about you going out then and being like, turn or burn. It is the kindness. The, when the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, not by works, he saved us and called us with a holy calling. And so remember, the kindness of God is what compels us to tell others about his mercy, about his grace, about his forgiveness against the day of judgment. God, I know that this is so much. But Lord, help us. Lord, we are, we are your children, Lord, that need to be assured and reassured, Lord, of your character, of your kindness, of your mercy, Lord, of your righteousness, of your justice. Lord, help us to read Scripture in light of Exodus 34, in light of the flood of mercy and grace and forgiveness and reluctant judgment. And Lord, of course, we thank you this morning, Lord, that you have made a way, Lord, that we can escape judgment. Lord, how incredible is this, Lord? We have played a part in the evil that's in the world. Maybe we haven't murdered anybody. Maybe we haven't been as violent as the Canaanites, Lord, but we have added to uh, the evil and darkness of this world, Lord, through our own selfishness. And yet, Lord, you have laid the iniquity of all of us on Jesus and offer us forgiveness, peace, a new start, a new hope. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that we would not take that for granted, that we would not take it lightly, Lord, that you crushed Jesus, Jesus, that you willingly gave yourself for us. And so, Lord, this morning, would we come, Lord, through the bread and the cup, and would we offer ourselves anew to you? Would we renew our vows, Lord, that you would wash and cleanse us, Lord, that we would be holy and that we would be representatives of your mercy, your forgiveness, and your reluctant judgment in this world, God. Give us grace, we pray in your name. Amen.